0: Hi there, I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante, a podcast that, as you well know, is walking passage by passage through Dante's masterwork, comedy, this great, unbelievable poem, it's taking us forever, and yet, at the same time, it seems for me... (laughs) to be so much fun, just step by step in the way that I have always wanted to approach this poem, but never could figure out how to do it. Thank science <laughs> for podcasting and for the ability to do this. We're in Purgatorio, Canto 8, we're at lines 85 through 108, we are at the appearance, the much talked about and vaunted appearance of the serpent in the small valley of the negligent rulers. This is a complicated passage full of allegorical problems and symbolic problems, we will come to absolutely no conclusions on this passage because no one ever has for 700 years. This is my English translation of the medieval Florentine. You can find it on my website, markscarbro.com or walkingwithdante.com. You can read along there. And better yet, you can leave comments there. I thank you very much for the comments that have been left there already about this very passage. Keith, you help me think about green in this passage so without any further ado let's just have it canto 8 of purgatorio lines 85 through 108 my hankering eyes kept looking up toward heaven toward that spot in the sky where the stars turn the slowest just as a wheel turns close to the axle my guide said to me son What are you gawking at up there? And I replied to him, At those three little torches which fire up all of the pole down here. Then he said to me, The four bright stars that you saw this morning are now down low back there. These have come up where the others were. As Virgil was speaking, Sordelo pulled him close, saying, Behold over there, our adversary. He pointed his finger where we should look. In that part of the little valley without any embankment, there came a serpent, maybe even the one that gave Eve the bitter-tasting fruit. The slithering evil made its way through the grass and flowers, swiveling its head from time to time to lick its back like a beast that grooms itself. I didn't see, and therefore cannot say, just how those celestial hawks started in motion, but I could clearly see them both once they were in motion. When it heard green wings cut through the air, the serpent fled. The angels both whirled around and returned to their respective posts. If you remember, we have just come out of a uh, misogynistic disquisition by the noble Judge Nino about the infidelity of his wife after his death, if infidelity is possible in a marriage after one of the partners dies. But okay, well, we'll let him have it. I guess we didn't really let him have it in the last episode, but we'll just say at least that that's what has happened right before us, and we've been told that a snake is approaching. We. saw angels descend onto the rim of this valley, two of them with giant green wings that fluttered down and kind of hovered over the edges of the valley. And we were told by Sordello that a snake visits here apparently every night. This street theater, this mummery goes on all the time. We want to talk about why we want to talk about those three stars and the four stars and what all that means and why it means something here. Finally, at the end, I want to say the allegory continues out through the back of the passage, even after the snake is gone, when perhaps you may have thought the allegory stopped. Let's get to it. The passage begins, My hankering eyes kept looking up toward the heaven. Now, you should know that a lot of modern critics make a lot out of this. The hungry or greedy eyes of the pilgrim focused on the heavens. And the reason they make much on this is because this gets them out of the previous passage's misogyny. They say, well, yes, Judge Nino was carrying on about his wife and talking about the infidelity of women in general. But all the time, the pilgrim hasn't been paying attention to him the pilgrim is focused toward the heavens they do that so that they could kind of gloss the misogyny or paint over it or enamel it or something I don't need to do that but I can't say this it is true that Nino's focus is terrestrial and that Nino's focus is still on his marriage and is on the future relationships of his wife and the prayers of his daughter and it is true that the pilgrim is focused elsewhere on that heavens where these stars are and maybe we should pay Very close attention to that. Maybe we should notice that still these souls in antipurgatory, as I've said a million times, are facing back toward the land of the living. And our pilgrim is learning how not to be involved with it. We want to talk a lot about that in this episode ahead because I think it might bear on this passage. But let's first talk about the wheel that occurs here, those circling stars up above. So our pilgrim is looking up at the skies and he's looking where the stars turn slowest, just as a wheel turns close to the axle. Let me say a couple things about this, which is incredibly interesting for our passage. One, there is clearly a part where the heavens are turning more slowly than other parts. And we will learn way down the line when we get in Paradiso that that's not really possible. The fixed stars are going to be on one of the spheres of the heavens, and there is no spot in the heavens where a set of stars would be turning more slowly. So it does appear to us that Dante doesn't quite have his cosmology worked out here. He may understand something about the physics of rotation and the speed of rotation around an axis, but he still doesn't have a cosmology fully worked out. But I can tell you this, he's focused on the wheel And we should just think about this for a minute because Inferno Cantos 5 through 7, those passages are very much concerned with the wheel of fortune. And if you just think about it, Purgatorio Cantos 6 through 8 are also Concerned with the Wheel of Fortune, with the squabbles in Italy, the fights, the bloody warfare, with the negligent rulers. This is all about the vicissitudes of fortune, that wheel that spins and brings some high and some low. And so we get a reference to a wheel here. I think you can beautifully cross read Inferno's notions of the Wheel of Fortune into Purgatorio Cantos 6 to 8 because we are dealing with the fortunes of terrestrial rulers, the fortunes of those who try to climb up power and who are brought low, even the fortunes of marriages. All of that is happening here. And Dante turns, and this is what's important, from the wheel of fortune as exemplified by the rulers and the strife in Italy and even marriages and turns toward the, dare I say it, greater wheel, the wheel of heaven. Now, listen, I am a 21st century guy. I do not believe the wheel of the heavens is more important than the political and economic wheels of this earth. I don't think that (laughs) I'm laughing because in my head I'm saying, don't take my dialectical materialism away from me. But I do think there is a way in which we have been dealing with the rather, what I want to say, random qualities of fortune amongst the living and amongst people those in power in the living. And now we see the pilgrim turned elsewhere. And this is the journey ahead to learn that the important turning wheel is not the wheel of power on earth, but the wheel above you in the heavens. That for sure is comedy. The passage goes on, my guide, that is Virgil, said to me, Son, what are you gawking up at there? And the filial connection here is really nice. That is, we've had this familial strife with Judge Nino, and now Virgil, who is not Dante's father, actually, by blood, of course, but who is Dante's father poetically and perhaps through their shared experience of this journey, now we have this rather comforting family after Nino. Son, what are you gawking at up there? And Dante replies at those three little torches which fire up all the pole down here. And Virgil Then says back, let's get through the whole passage and we'll talk about it. The four bright stars, remember that was in Purgatorio, Canto 1, lines 22 through 25, right at the opening of Purgatorio, we saw four stars in the heavens as dawn was just beginning to light. So, Virgil says, the four bright stars that you saw this morning, so a day has passed, I want to talk about that in a minute, are now down low back there. And I think the implication here is, and most scholars think the implication here is that the mountain of purgatory is hiding them. They've turned and wheeled down, and these three stars have wheeled up, and so they can't be seen because purgatory itself, the mountain, is blocking the sight of them. Let's talk about this for a minute in two different ways. Let's talk about it as morning and night, which is what mm, the passage does in fact tell us. Morning and night is really important to Purgatorio. So important that it's what makes Purgatorio seem so human. Inferno, if you remember, opens up on Monday Thursday night. Dante finds himself awake in the wood or refinds himself in the wood. I don't know if he's awake up in the wood but he refinds himself in a wood on Monday Thursday night the night elapses as he starts to climb the hill Uh, In the next morning, that would be Good Friday morning, he falls down the hill because of the bees. Virgil appears. We take it that that climb up the hill was quite arduous and took a long time because by the time Virgil appears, it seems to be a bit dusky already down in the wood. Then Virgil tells his story of coming to rescue Dante, and then they set out for the gate of hell as evening falls. And so we basically pass this time in hell with very few notions of the passing of time above. Virgil does give us some Zodiac references. We don't know how Virgil knows what the Zodiac's doing when they're in a cave underground. But nonetheless, Virgil does give us some markers of time passing. But there's not this sense of rising and setting suns and what's coming upon us, which is that Dante will lie down and go to sleep. This gives purgatorio an incredibly human feel the days are elapsing and the journey across hell while it may have taken from evening all the way till almost sunrise on Easter Sunday morning and we gotta account for the flipping of the globe and all that stuff so <laughs> let's just pass over that because we dealt a lot with it back in Inferno nonetheless that temporal passage is, uh, what am I going to say, muddied? A little bit of help from Virgil, but not much. Here, human, time passing, all very connected. But what's passing here? Oh, that would be the stars. Let's talk about those. We talked about it when we got to Purgatorio One Line's 22 through 25 and the four stars up. And those are the points in which Cato appears and Virgil seems to give his story about for no other fault, you know, except that I didn't know the proper virtues and redemption. I'm in limbo. We talked about all this and how those four stars probably represent the four cardinal virtues, justice, prudence, fortitude, and temperance. And now it's really important to see that the cardinal virtues are setting and the three theological virtues are rising, faith, hope, and love. The three big Christian virtues coming out of the writings of St. Paul, particularly the letter, the first letter to the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Some commentators have spent a lot of time talking about this as. Actual stellar sightings. And there's a lot of work, especially in the 19th century, later 19th century, amongst scholars to try to locate exactly what stars these are in the Southern Hemisphere. And there's a lot of talk about Dante potentially knowing about Southern stars from reading Marco Polo's journals and from some other texts. But I should tell you, There's just no proof that Dante ever read Marco Polo's journals. It seems a very tenuous connection, and I don't know that I need these to be actual literal stars that you could see in the sky. Instead, I like to take the lead of two different 19th century critics, both Jacopo della Lana and Francesco d'Abuti, and they both wrote in the mid 1800s, and the claim they make for this passage is that what we are witnessing is the setting of the classical virtues and the rising of the Christian virtues. And this is happening right as we approach the final moments before the gate of purgatory itself. In fact, I would blow it out a little more and say not only are these the classical virtues that are setting, the four cardinal virtues, but maybe even the setting of the classical world and the coming of the true. Holy Christian world of the poem we're seeing a move and a turn away from a Virgil Cato landscape. And toward a more strictly Christian landscape full of much more strictly Christian figures. And I think that may be a clue as to what's going on in this passage. Because why should we worry about the setting of the classical virtues and the coming of the Christian virtues or the ascendance of the Christian virtues over the classical virtues just at the moment? when the snake appears. (laughs) There's a question for you. Let's get to the snake passage then. So Virgil's talking, you know, explaining the setting of these four and the rising of these three and I think again 99.99% of Dante scholars these days take these stars to be allegorical rather than actual physical stars and Virgil's explaining not the allegory but just the physical presence in the poem of the stars and Sordelo suddenly pulls Virgil close and says, behold over there, our adversary, Oh, just a key word for Satan. And he points his finger where we should look. I love that naturalistic detail from Dante. And so Delo, you know, points over there and they look across the valley. And this is a part where the rim just basically doesn't exist. The valley just kind of shades off without that embankment that they were standing on for a minute. And here comes the serpent right into it. Now, there may be all kinds of allegory here. Think about it. Think about it symbolically. The part of the valley with no embankment is how the serpent can get in. So that protective embankment is gone over there and the serpent gets in. And then we get this line, maybe even the one that gave Eve the bitter fruit. And it's that maybe the so curious why the doubt why the little bit of hesitation here now we've talked a lot about uh, virgin mary and eve about virgin whore and again this brings it straight up eve in the passage and we had the virgin earlier we had nino's wife we have all of this operating in the passage and yet there's this little tiny bit of doubt maybe that begins that line Isn't Dante sure that this is the serpent from the Garden of Eden? It'd make more sense if it were, (laughs) but... Is there any doubt to this matter? What then is the temptation? Oh, that's the question. So let's just hold that question for a minute and just look at the last three lines of this little bit. It says the slithering evil made its way through the grass and flowers. And you just know that that word slithering is really interesting. It is a verb to slither or to sneak that Dante has turned into a noun. So this slither evil, this evil slither, but slither has become a noun and it's not necessarily a noun in medieval Florentine as we know it. So Dante, again, is starting to play with grammar, turning verbs into nouns when he needs them. The slithering evil made its way through the grass and flowers, swiveling its head from time to time to lick its back like a beast that grooms itself. This is very disgusting imagery. This thing is licking itself. It's proud. It has an unbelievable narcissistic edge to it. It wants to groom itself. It wants to make itself prettier here with two angels floating over it. So the big question, what in the world does it mean? That is the $24 million question without a doubt. What in the world does it mean? Of course, you know that most Christians interpret the snake in the Garden of Eden as Satan. Now, we should just pause for a moment and at least add the historical detail here. Nowhere in the book of Genesis is that snake or serpent Called Satan. That is a Christian interpretation of that passage. If you go back to Genesis and you look at the fall sequence in it, all it says is the serpent or the snake was the craftiest, the wiliest, the most conniving of all the creatures created. It doesn't say it's the devil, it doesn't say it's Satan. And in fact, in rabbinic interpretations, It's not Satan. In fact, it takes Christians a couple of centuries of exegesis, of interpretation, to finally reinterpret the snake in the garden as Satan. But surely we would say, that's the historical background, surely we would say now, in Dante's day, that interpretation is secure. Why is it here, and what's it doing here? In other words, to put the question very crassly, what is the temptation here? Or what is the danger here? Dante turned around and froze at the mention of a snake. Let's not forget his reaction to hearing that a snake was coming. What is the temptation? Well, given Dante's turning around and freezing, and given the stars mentioned in this passage, Is the temptation to keep returning to the classical world? Is the temptation to not see that the three stars have to be ascendant, faith, love, and hope, that the Christian virtues have to be ascendant in this most Christian of all poems? And is there a way that Dante is still stuck in the classical world? And this serpent is that last infernal gasp. Inferno was heavily indebted to Virgilian landscapes and classical world landscapes in ways that Dante cannot be for purgatory or paradise. He can't model this part of the afterlife on classical authors. Is this then, as I've said to you, the last gasp of inferno, and here comes the last temptation to still hold on to those four stars that are now setting as the three stars are rising. Or is it, and perhaps this is another way to say mm, similar things, is the temptation here to be engaged in European politics? We've had two cantos that are heavily, heavily engaged in Italian strife down to the The indictment, the absolutely prophetic stance of the poet toward Italy's strife, and then all of these negligent rulers. And is there a way that this poem could become too bogged down in all of this? And so, here amongst the negligent rulers, we get this figure that could say, hey, you know what, you could stick around here for a good long time and make this Christian poem very political, when in fact, it has, <laughs> to put it crassly, theological fish to fry. I mean, it's got to get on to its theology in order to become a fully Christian poem. Or is the danger or the temptation the uh, the, uh, the the will to find evil in the good? We're back to the poetics. Everybody here is turned back in these anti-purgatory cantos, turned back. To the terrestrial world. Is that the threat here? That is, you've got to stop focusing back on what happened the snake in the Garden of Eden, the temptation, and you've got to start looking forward to the stars. Is there a way that that's the case? And if that's the case, then maybe the temptation is also to, and dare I say it, de-theologize purgatory. If you're going to just talk about politics in Italy and you're going to make this a screed about Italian warfare, then you've, for lack of a better word, de-theologized Purgatory is that why the serpent is licking itself? Because it's too enamored with itself. It's too enamored with its own cleverness and its own beauty. Well, I'm looking at you, Dante. Is it too, is it too enamored with all of that? And you know what? If you just think about it for a minute, the first eight cantos of Purgatory are strange. It's almost as if Dante is delaying the matter of getting into Purgatory. He's just holding back. An Holding back. When do we get to the people purgating their sins? When do we get to the people who are having to pay for lust and envy and sloth? When do we get into that stuff? And when are we getting to the people who are actually making their way to heaven instead of these who were just lazing around a dale or like Balakwa lazing under the shade of a rock or just rotating endlessly around the bottom slopes of the mountain without really any forward momentum, no hope? yet to get in that gate and go on is that Dante holding back is there a way that Dante himself is reticent to the work ahead and this this snake that comes out of nowhere and seems so jarring in the scene and seems not to fit the good part of the afterlife is there a way there's a meta poetical statement here about not moving forward but in the end you have to you know you have to and in fact Dante knows he has to because this snake who comes here this potential tempter or this thing that caused the fall in the Garden of Eden in the end it's easily put to rout. I didn't see, the passage says, and thus cannot say just how those celestial hawks or falcons, birds of prey, how those angels, those celestial hawks started in motion, but I could clearly see them both once they were in motion. When it heard those green wings cut through the air, the serpent fled. The angels both whirled around and returned to their respective posts. We are clearly dealing with a piece of street theater and clearly this is why their swords are broken, their flaming swords. They don't need swords to defend against this serpent. All they have to do is just fly up in the air and threaten. And the thing runs off, unlike the experience in the Garden of Eden. It's all over. Redemption is done now, except for the actual work of paying for your sins. And so, there's a way that this scene is a foregone conclusion, an anti-climax, sure enough. But let me say that I think the allegory continues into this bit right here. When Dante says he didn't see and therefore cannot say just how the angels started in motion, but he could clearly see them once they were in motion, I can't help but think he's making a theological statement. I can't see how grace starts, but I can see it once it's moving. I relate this right back to that passage where Judge Nino said that the because Of God, the first because is hidden, is obscured, and we can't see it right? Remember this? The initial or primary because is hidden. And so we don't know why God would let somebody walk in the body through the afterlife. I tie that to this. That is, we can't see the beginnings, but once it's moving, we can see it and we can understand it. And once it's moving, we can see its action. That surely is Dante's stance toward the very Christian idea of grace, There is no final way to know, but there is a way to see it in action, and here the action is protective, and also, let's say, the action is to get on, get on with the business of purgatory. It lies right ahead of us. So, poet, get busy. There are no snakes left or no snakes that can hurt you. Let's turn to where the meat of the matter lies. And that lies in the passage just ahead of us. We will start that next time in the next episode in which this curious figure, Cavado, who Nino told to stand up. Well, he's going to make his appearance, and we'll talk about him and how this most curious canto ends. I also want to talk about the strange structure of this canto. It's quite amazing the way it's put together on the page. To get there, please subscribe to this podcast, rate it, like it, do all those things that you have to do. Come on. <laughs> I have to beg you. <laughs> Your four stars are setting. Your three are coming on the horizon. Do what you have to do. So take a cue here and rate like do all that subscribe to the podcast just mostly come back because we're going to keep walking in purgatorio and we're going to finally walk through that gate man it's just ahead of us first for canado then on to the gate of purgatory on walking with Dante. i'm mark scarborough i'll see you for the next steps